Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, so what we thought we would do today was to revisit a couple of the key concepts we talked about last week. Um, and the three we decided to pick on, because they're all sort of connected, and we're going to try to touch on them in this order, are these. The first is the idea of sin, specifically original sin, which is connected to another idea with a fancy name, total depravity. But that's the first thing we want to talk about. When we talk about sin and sinfulness, what do we, what do we actually mean by that? What do, what do Christians believe as, regardless of what particular flavor of church they might be in this Sunday morning, what is it that Christians believe about sin? The second thing is that thing we call the will or free will. I know that's a term we use a lot, especially in the South. But that's an important concept that bears on our understanding of our need for Christ and our understanding of salvation. And the third one is grace. We use that word a lot. It's more complex than we sometimes think. And we want to make sure we, we sort of understand what that means. Rather than doing um, competing lectures like we do sometimes, um, we're trying to stage today's conversation, well, today's conversation as a conversation. Um, I'm going to ask some questions. I'm going to let Lauren try to answer them. Um, we're going to try to cover all three of these. Um, but certainly, if, if, you, if something pops up, that a question that you'd like to ask or a clarification, don't hesitate to ask. So let's talk about these. Um, as a way of review, last week we, we talked about Augustine, the father of the church, early 5th century, very influential in um, helping to define Christian doctrine. Um, much of what he, much of the foundation he laid is still foundational in terms of Christian orthodoxy and Christian belief. Not everything. He's still controversial today, too, in some way. We also talked about um, a theological opponent of his, or someone he made into an opponent, um, a British monk named Pelagius, um, who's associated with a heresy called Pelagianism. What that means basically is, Pelagius believed that humans were pretty good, and at least in theory, they, were, they could live perfect lives if they tried hard enough. They didn't need any special help necessarily from God. Christians could be good enough on their own. Augustine, by contrast, said absolutely not. That once Adam fell, it was over for the rest of us. Not only were we inclined to sin, not only could we choose to sin, we couldn't help but sin, and Adam's sin we inherit at the moment of birth. We're guilty with our first cry from the womb, and there's nothing we can do about it. We absolutely need grace from the start. 
Now, that's kind of a stark contrast. We're not sure exactly what Pelagius believed because what we know about Pelagius comes mainly from Augustine. Um, so, so, so that's something to think about. Nevertheless, don't worry about Pelagius. The idea that Pelagius expressed, however, is a thing that some people lean towards or fully accept. The humans are, are pretty good people, are pretty good creatures. A different way of imagining those two ideas, again, this is a little bit of review, is that for Augustine, there was one first human, Adam, what happened but the first one was Adam. Adam was perfectly created. Adam had absolute freedom to choose to obey or not. He chose to disobey. And his disobedience meant that there would never be another Adam born in the sense of all of his future descendants were already broken out of the box. Pelagius, by contrast, thought about it this way. This position, the high view of human beings, is that at the moment of birth, all of us are born essentially just like Adam. We're at that moment perfectly created and sinless. And we can choose to stay that way. If we're good enough, we can be that way, although most of us aren't that good. In other words, the difference is, here we are sinful by nature. Here, not necessarily, but probably we're going to sin. High view of humanity versus a low view of humanity. So that's, that's sort of, when we talk about original sin, the idea is to, to deal with, and correct me if I'm wrong, Lauren, the key differences are, already, all, are we already sinners at the moment of birth? Or, are we, like Adam, perfectly created creatures who sooner or later, and probably sooner, are going to make bad choices like Adam made bad choices, and then we will become sinners? Is that an accurate way of... Yeah. A couple things to read. Um, I think that's a that's a good way of framing it. Matt set it up really well, and I think what we might think of specifying a little bit more is for Augustine, what gets corrupted when sin is introduced is our desires. Our very desires themselves are are sort of weighed down or infected in some sense. So. It's not even just that we'll eventually make bad choices. It's that we don't even know how to make good choices to begin with because our desires are aimed in the wrong direction. So he thinks because of that, there has to be this reorientation in the right direction. And Pelagius isn't thinking that we're disoriented. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the other thing, a couple of things that were decided... Um, out of this conflict at the Council of Ephesus. The council decided to reject Pelagius's teachings as heretical. Um, they declared that it is not possible not to sin um, due to Adam's fall and our inheritance of the, that corruption. 
But this is important. So it's not possible not to sin. We all need grace. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. But they, the council did not decide that we were as bad as we could possibly be. So in other words, um, we are all corrupted. We are all in need of grace. But there's still some good. There are still some kind of traces of good, goodness perhaps, left in humanity. Whereas Augustine tended not to see things that way. So he had this... You know, Matt, what Matt's drawn down here, this very low view of humanity. Like, we're about as bad as we could be. Um, whereas the council says, um, probably not, maybe not. So that's a point of conflict in relation to Augustine's teaching. And then another point is, um, so we don't always only sin. That kind of goes in hand with that idea. So, and then... When, when we think about how this gets played out in terms of the history of the Christian teaching, you have something like a range of options within, within this kind of spectrum of the view of humanity. But what we inherited as uh, members of Churches of Christ is what's called an Arminian view. And that view is that we have enough, humans have enough kind of, uh, and this, this is where we're already getting into the discussion of the freedom of the will, but we do have the freedom or capacity to accept the gift of grace or to reject it. Augustine is one of these guys, like Calvin after him, who, who explained it a bit differently, but who thinks we don't even have that freedom. We're, we are pretty much so entirely corrupted that it all has to be done for us in some sense by God. Whereas you have you know, Arminius and then later on John Wesley and then the Stone Campbellite teachings are, you know, are all kind of joining in the view that, well, it's always a gift. It's always grace that we have salvation. It's always God's help that is keeping us steady in our salvation. But we do have some freedom to say yes or no to it. We have some freedom to enter into it or to reject it. Ongoing freedom. So, so this is so this this view. If you if you go to this extreme is. Grace is optional. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have it to be good enough. This one is, there's absolutely no way you're any good at all. Period. Yeah. And you can't even do anything good unless you have grace. Grace is just absolutely essential. That, that's a little bit simplistic. Can you contrast uh, Augustine's view of original sin with the kind of modern-day Calvinistic view of total depravity? Well, <clears throat> it's similar. Um, did everyone hear his question? He was asking about um, the difference between Augustine's view with the modern-day view of total depravity. There, I mean, Augustine held something like a view of total depravity, that the human is, so, is completely rotten to the core. And um, part of that, we can think about what's going on historically for Augustine. Um, some of the questions that that Calvin was asking about a thousand years later, and then modern-day neo-Calvinists are still talking about, um, kind of think in different categories than Augustine thought in because they were thinking more in terms of what we talked about last week, I believe, um, what we the, the humanist tradition. So it has kind of a... Everyone started to hold a sort of higher view of humans by the time Calvin comes along. They start thinking humans are endowed with with good traits like natural reason, um, things that can kind of help us make good choices. And so Calvin is wrestling with 
how much of this is something that we can claim as being from God? Is, is this a gift from God or not? And so Calvin was really focusing on our fallenness and our need for grace in order to know God intimately. Um, Augustine was thinking more in terms of, he's looking around, I mean, think about the, the context he lives in. I mean, part of what he's feeling guilty about is he used to go to uh, what he called the games and watch people torn apart by wild animals. This was what he did for entertainment before he became a Christian. Um, and so this is, the, this is the society he lives in. It's a pretty brutal one. And it's one where it wasn't hard for him to think we're all pretty terrible. We're all pretty messed up because that, this is the, the, this world he's living in. By the time Calvin comes along, things have got, general conditions of living have gotten a lot better. It's just a different set of questions and a different sense of maybe perhaps we might say inner guilt that people are dealing with later. Whereas for Augustine, the, the guilt is sort of worn on the sleeve of humanity, if that makes sense. Would you add no, to that from no, your... I'm trying to think how, in a, in a practical sense, you know, how this is, is kind of relevant. So I'm going to try to answer that question that way and then fix it. Um, <laughs> in, the, in the world I live in, which is the same one you live in, I guess. Okay. In a world that, that, that sometimes is described as post-Christian, that still has a lot of Christians in it, um, the boundary between those who are Christian and those who aren't is really broad, gray, and fuzzy sometimes. The way I see it playing out in the, among people I know is that there are some people who, who tend to think, you know, sin is something you can fix. You just be good. Just say no. And, and, and you can't. In other words, this is kind of a bootstrappy kind of religion, right? Good Christians take care of themselves, and they don't go to places they shouldn't go, and they don't say things they shouldn't say. And if they do, it's it's, it's their fault, and they can stop if they want to. God helps those who help themselves. Bingo, that, that's this one. Does that make sense? And the way that tends to play out is people who hold that view tend to blame sinners for being lazy or weak or undisciplined are at best ignorant, they just don't know any better. If they did know better, they wouldn't say those things, do those things, drink those things, shoot up those things. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm not sure that's helpful. But that's where you go if, if, when you start to think that way about sin, you're rising with the tide of what somebody might call Pelagianism. You're starting to think that really we can be good enough if we just try hard enough, and if, if we sin, it's, it's our own fault. We can do better. By contrast, we have people who think they have absolutely no self-worth. They don't believe they can be saved. In fact, I'm so bad, God can't possibly save me. No church would have me. I can't, I, I can't not do what I don't want to do over and over again. I can't kick this habit. I can't stop that practice. I'm, I'm a worthless person, and so is everybody else. And we're all just um, nasty, mean, brutish creatures. That and so sense. everything... God doesn't answer my prayers. Well, and, and, you know, what Augustine would say, and uh, today's Calvinists would insist upon, is that good works do accompany a saved life, um, but there's no explanation for that other than the fact that God is doing this in us. God is doing this for us. Yeah, Richard. Uh, 
picking up on Calvin, so in, in many ways Calvin is this 16th century version of Augustine, though tempered, as you indicate, but clearly held the predestination. And what's interesting is that, that in America, that hardline predestination, or you have no free will, God has predestined you to damnation or something, all that stuff falls on hard times. I mean, in the colonies, the Puritans believed all of that. By the time you get to the birth of the new nation, how are you going to, how do you maintain that kind of a notion in this country where people are free? Right. Freedom of speech, freedom of the press, you know, freedom, but there's one place you're not free in the religion. And so it's interesting that the, that the religion that took the American country by storm, as you know, was Methodism, mm -hmm. which was utterly, and, and the Camelites, you know, we did too. I mean, we were successful because, and, and people who pushed that hard line Calvinism on the American frontier really weren't very successful. And then the other thing that occurs to me is, my sense is that that's making the, the Calvinism is making a comeback these days. And that may say a lot about where we are in our society today. But people may not feel quite the same level of freedom yeah. that they felt the year they Yeah, that this makes day. a lot of sense. That might be a good segue to, to number two here when we talk about, about free will. When we talk about free will, there, there, again, there's, there's a spectrum here. If we go back to Augustine, Augustine would, eventually he comes to the point where he says there, there's no such thing as free will unless what you mean is we always eventually do what we want to do and we can't do otherwise than what we want to do. If you go to church and you really don't want to go to church, you do want to go to church. Otherwise you wouldn't go. So that's, that's kind of what that means. And when it comes to... Um, our ability to choose whether to, to do good or evil at one end of the spectrum is something we might call the, the, a belief in predeterminism or pre, which is connected to predestination but what it means is we aren't really free moral agents we are always going to make bad choices unless God himself gets us off the hook by grace at the other at another extreme, this is the Arminian position. The idea over here is that, and that would be true even after you're trying to live a Christian life, you're still going to naturally make bad decisions. If if you do anything good, God's God's if God's He deserves all the glory. Literally, you don't get any credit because it's God. If it's good, it's God. Otherwise, it's you. On this side, it's a slight modification. God gives us grace, and the grace of God frees us to then make a choice about whether to do a good thing or not. In other words, Arminius believed in a freed will. The grace of God sort of unlocks our moral agency and then we can make a choice. We tend to just talk about free will without either explaining what we either we go all the way to one extreme or all the way to the other and we confuse that with something Americans love politically which is freedom and the freedom to choose kind of liberty idea. kind of like personal liberty which when it's overlaid on top of Christian theology 
can become extraordinarily confusing. Now, like I said, I tried to draw a Venn diagram. I think that's what those are called. <laughs> We're sort of artificially separating these concepts. They really are difficult to separate because one influences the other. I'm going to stop there. Well, I think people who believe in, in predestination would say they believe in free will kind of in the sense of um, we are liberated from bondage, so we are free in that sense, uh, a kind of a kind of freedom that you experience in just, oh, this is what I was actually made for. This is a true sense of, of flourishing, maybe. Whereas on the other side of that, the freed will is something more like uh, because of grace, we are liberated from bondage and we experience the capacity to make real choices for the first time. Otherwise, when you're, when you're only living in sin, you're subject to, to a, a kind of addiction. It's an addiction that you chose. It's an addiction that you're responsible for, but you can't get out of that. There's no way to pull yourself out of that. You have to be freed. And that's prevenient grace, that, that term. It's the kind of grace that, that leads you into the possibility of choice. And that, again, that's what we inherited in our tradition, in case you're wondering. Um, and it makes it makes good sense to me, and that's the, you know, if you're wondering where I come down on all this, I think that's probably pretty obvious. But now here's the practical side of, of, of this discussion about free will. Um, predestination is related to predeterminism, which or determinism, which which pretty much is what's going on when you hear somebody say, absolutely everything that happens happens for God's good reason. Nothing happens that God doesn't. Um, make happen, or at least permit to happen. Every single ha thing that happens in our world is a function of what God's plan is. Now, some days that sounds really good and very positive. It runs up against a wall when you start having to explain why bad things happen, and especially why bad things happen to good people and why bad things don't happen to bad people, which leads you to the, the really bumpy theological question is, if God is entirely good, and there's no evil in God, and God is omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent, there's nowhere He isn't, there's nothing He doesn't know, there's nothing He can't do, how do you explain the presence of evil in the world? And those are the... those juggling those four balls is a difficult theological thing. There's a name for it. Theodicy. But at some points in most of our lives, we bump into those questions that make us wonder if anybody is running the ship, so to speak, or if anything I do is ever going to really matter, or can we really change it? That's, that's how practically it is. If you believe that everything's predetermined, you can't change it. It's all God, all the time, even when it's really, really bad. The Twin Towers that fall. That's part of God's plan. How do we explain that? With great difficulty to most people. But that's what you've got to explain if you actually believe that every single thing that happens in the world has already been determined, which means God already knows what I'm going to do. Why should I worry about what to do? It's going to happen. Whereas over here, we have different explanations for how that happens. This is not any easier to believe than that, but they have practical consequences that, that, act, that sort of work themselves out in different ways.
Yeah, and, and some of that, it, the, the consequences have to do with this distinction. Um, so the reformers are really big on saying we're saved through uh, grace alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And um, what a lot of the pushback you would hear against Luther and Calvin on those points has to do with the fact that it depends on how we're defining faith. Are we defining it just as trust? Are we saved? We all agree we're saved by grace. We don't save ourselves. This is all a gift. But then, this, what does the faith part of that imply? Does that imply just a kind of trust? Like, I just trust that I'm going to be saved regardless of how corrupt I am because I have this in me. Or is it a kind of faithfulness? So that's trust plus works of love is what the, you know, the Roman Catholic doctrine is. And we have, we have a, of course, again, inherited this end of it that it's about a trust plus obedience. Trust and obey, there's no other way. Um, and where we could probably get weighed into the water of Pelagianism, and we need to be careful of it, is when we start to kind of take responsibility or feel proud of our obedience, or think, it's because I've done something really great, I'm a pretty awesome person. And that's where we're reminded, actually, this is all a gift, this is not about my merit, this is nothing that I've actually done, and it's about acknowledging that perhaps I have made the choice of allowing grace to influence me, but there's a kind of irony if I start feeling proud of that, which is that that's actually taking me away from those works of love. So um, that might actually be an ironic way in which we, we close ourselves off to the influence of grace when we start feeling proud of our works. So to sort of make sense of this in the context of this class, do you remember Josh Strahan's bullseye? The Strahan bullseye? And in the very middle, he's got those core beliefs that all Christians, all of the Christians, would say, they would check that box. They'd say, yes, I believe that. So what, what all Orthodox Christians believe is they all believe in grace. In other words, none of us could be saved without God just deciding because He loved us that he's going to make up the difference between whatever we could possibly do and what perfection requires. Catholic, Protestant, free will Baptist, Nazarene, everybody's going to say we believe that. Where they, where they disagree, where we move outside that bullseye into that slightly more debatable part, we can still be Christians, but we have strong differences. Isn't something like this. This is where, for me, growing up in... Uh, a lot of Texas, small southern churches, where, and forgive me for saying this, but this is what I came up understanding. Baptists believe in grace alone. That's why they're so lazy as Christians. We all know that there's more to it than that. you gotta, you got to do some things. Right? Faith without works is dead. That was the, those were the set of verses that we used. So our tradition, I think, is on the faithfulness side. Yeah, God's grace is what actually saves us. And of course, we all agree, Christians, faith is required. But some Christians think faith by itself is not quite enough, that we're expected to as a consequence of our faith, as the proof of our faith, as the fruits of our faith, that it will, it will show itself in what the Catholic Church calls works of love, what we call living a good life, Avoiding sin, doing good work. So, so we all agree on grace. We all agree that faith's important. 
But is it just trust, sola fide? Or is it faith plus living up to the faith? And again, the sola fide people would say good works will accompany this. They would just say it's not about us cooperating. It's about God doing it in us. Does that make sense? Okay. I saw a couple of hands. This makes me feel like a pinball machine. <laughs> because there's so much... I think I'm on this side, I think I'm on this side, I'm not sure, but one thing that keeps coming back to me is this has to be done in the context of community. Because if I only, be, if, I'm, if I accept grace and then I'm stuck in those other two circles not showing where I am, I need someone else to come in and say, you're still a part of us. You know, it, it, you don't have to be one or the other, you don't have to have a high low or low, high view or high, whatever it is, low, high or low. You can, you can still be accepted. Um, and I wonder, as we are, I, I think about when Jesus was brought the blind man and was questioned, who sinned, his parents or him? And it's like, people have been struggling with this for years. And so I find comfort in the fact that we have to be a community and we may never have the answer. Yeah. Yeah, even Augustine and even Calvin left room for mystery. That they, they couldn't fully explain why they believed exactly the way they believed about predeterminism or forgiveness. They got to a point where they said, but well, God can do what he wants, and he, and he will, and it's beyond our understanding sometimes. The key verse for me is Ephesians 2.10. We're created for good works because we're saved. If you, after having a conversion experience, refuse to do any good works. You're being very selfish because the whole idea of being a free Christian is to share with others and to, to show your praise to God the rest of your life because you're saved. If we, if we take that Ephesians verse in face value, that puts us right here. That, that we naturally are going to do good things. Yeah. What, what happens though is many of us realize that we're not naturally doing as many good things as we'd like and we're sort of naturally still messing up. Or we go to a church that tells us, well, we're glad you're saved, but you need to step it up a bit. You're only coming twice a week. You need to come three times a week. Wednesdays count too. I'm, I'm, I'm joking a little bit. But I think you understand what I mean if you grew up in, in some churches like I grew up in. That there's, there's an expectation, right? Um, for example... The church I grew up in is, you could smoke outside the church building, but we didn't drink, we didn't gamble, we didn't um, dance. 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 My didn't grandmother. In the church building. No kitchen. No kitchen in the church. You, you see the list, right? For my grandmother, it was no cards in the house except rope cards. <laughs> <laughs> but but you, you can see how, the, how it slides this way. There's an expectation of, of, of what we all, common sense would tell us you're supposed to do. I remember when. I met my roommate at Lipscomb. He was a Church of Christ guy from Indiana, right? And we were talking about stuff like roommates do when they get to know each other. And he mentioned, I have heard him over here, I overheard him mention, we were having a conversation, that when they went to church on Tuesday nights, and my immediate reaction was, that's the wrong night. <laughs> I mean, I thought, well, that's, that made me heresy. Now, I immediately realized, oh, that's a stupid idea. But that's that, that's a trigger. We, we, we start to sort of... It's, it's easy to slide from here. It's easy to say this. 
It's also easy to slide this way for some of us. By the same token, it's easy for us to go back to faith because this means you don't. I don't have to go to church every Sunday. I don't have to, and then fill in the blank. It's just all faith. Um, you are kind of making the easier uh, observations about us, but I was thinking about Baptists and us and how we were taught, you know, younger. But for Baptists, and I, 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 may, I may be wrong about this, their point of salvation is when they accept Jesus Christ. And there's a part of me that goes, yes. But aren't you going to go ahead and get baptized, right? Because for me, it, I do think we walk further on that line towards faithfulness because in our tradition, we've said then that to, to fully be with, you know, filled with the Holy Spirit, then you need to go into the waters of baptism. Is that take, we must do more physically even as human beings to engage in that in that relationship, that saved race relationship with God. Yeah. So that that to me is where I I can go, okay, I'm gonna let God sort all that out. But it's so ingrained in me that baptism is a, is a part of the the equation. Yeah, well and that's it's a great point because it highlights that the paradox there of saying God is doing this, it's a gift, and yet I make a decision to accept that gift, yeah. to enter into it. It's also that what the sacrament of baptism does is inaugurates you into Christ's body on multiple levels, one of those being communal. And so there is an acknowledgement that I don't do this on my own. There's an acknowledgement that I need grace and also that I need the community. So there's all that's happening there. And when it's done well, it's not done as a works righteousness in a works righteousness model. It's done as an acknowledgement of our need for these, these these other means of. Let's see. I think I saw a hand in the back first, and then I'll get Dixie again. Well, yeah, there's two. Let's see. I'll do the very back. Way in the back. Yeah, way in the back. Uh, I don't remember well. Uh, when you were talking about predeterminism and uh, predestination, I was thinking that. That view takes away the redeeming power of God. Why, why does it need to be a redeemer if he's already planned it all out? It's already planned out. Yeah, that's one of the major objections to that view. And then I was just looking at the Venn diagram and thinking, so what's the relationship with Jesus? Was he, he wasn't born with original sin. He was just grace and free will. And eventually that's that's what our lives are going to be. Yeah. The idea is that Jesus is the only person who didn't need grace, who's after Adam, whose will was totally free, and he was born without original sin. It's one reason Augustine thought he had to be born of a virgin, because he thought he literally was going to inherit sin otherwise. That's so. a really good point, and, and Christians have dealt, figured it out in different ways. When I teach uh, um, medieval literature, for example, I tell my students, you have to learn to wear a Catholic hat. And, and to remember that for Western Europe, that was the only hat. If you're a Christian, that's, that's what you are. In that world, this is the way they made sense of that. If, if, if all of sin, because we're children of Adam, how does Jesus get off being perfect? If you think about the world before DNA, people still understood animal husbandry and breeding. 
We know God is perfect. We believe Jesus is also morally perfect. If the Father is perfect and the Son is perfect, then the Mother's got to be perfect. Otherwise, He's not going to be perfect. Does that make sense? That's behind part of the theology of, of the cult of Mary in the Middle Ages. That's, that's the way they came to understand how Jesus, as being fully human, unlike you and me, is also fully God and fully perfect. Does that make sense? Of course, under the Jewish tradition, people under 20 years old were pretty much adjudicated as not being guilty. I mean, she was much younger than, than that, so she, she still had that perfection. And uh, now I liked your pinball, uh, pinball right? and, and you should feel like, especially if you grew up in our church, that you, you keep thinking, I'm here on the spectrum, and then the spectrum changes, and you realize I'm there on that spectrum. That, that's, that's the way it is. It's complicated. Let's talk about baptism. Mary talked about baptism. Right. Probably the only people who feel more strongly about baptism than conservative Church of Christers are good Catholics. But they understand baptism as a completely different kind of thing. They understand baptism not simply as a rational moral choice that symbolizes what you believe. They understood baptism as a sacramental moment. A, a thing you actually do. And by doing that thing, to my infant son, God makes this happen. He makes that sinful child, He infuses that child with that piece of His nature that makes Him free. But what's interesting is we have that same view, we just, the person's older. Right. We, we actually have a doctrine of a kind of real grace that is infused through baptism. Um, we're not so good on communion. That's where we, we get less, where we kind of wade into murkier water. It's one reason I really appreciated Randall's sermon a few weeks ago. Because that kind of richer understanding of, of the means of grace that's happening in the communion meal is really something we need. Because that's our sustenance for this journey. If you think about baptism as our initiation into it, or we might even think of a coming of age. Because you know, we might still consider our children Christians before they are baptized. But it's their entrance into accepting and saying, I'm going to cooperate now. Uh, I've come, come into adulthood. I can cooperate with grace in, in this really deliberate way that a child has no need of yet. You know? uh, we're out of time. They seem one of the... Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I was just going to say, like, for Mary's stuff of, like, absolutely believing that you got to, you can accept that then you got to be baptized, has a lot to do with how we read the Bible and influence, you know, have notes on But um, just through modern thinking is if everybody, you can objectively look at the same information and come to the same decision versus postmodernity when you realize it's all subjective to a person's experience makes a lot of sense to me on why just as many people think that you just can accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior as people who think that you also have to be baptized at the same time. You're right, except there's always, there's almost always been those people who sort of felt that way. In other words, it's not a function of 1968. Right. It goes away, that, that what we call sometimes what we call postmodern mm -hmm. actually is literally Postmodern, it happened before the 17th century. Mm -hmm. so, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It still resurfaces. 
we're still dealing with those those same tensions. That's a really good point. Uh, and it kind of connects with Richard's point about why we might tend more, Calvinism may have more of a influence now than it used to in, in America. Um, was there one, I, I didn't get to this gentleman here. Was there one comment you wanted to make? I know we're out of time, but. Are you sure? Okay, okay. Would you like to lead us in the Sure. Our, this is our habit. This will make Josh happy that we did <laughs> Let's recite the creed together. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So hopefully you'll come back next week for the resurrection. Thank you very much. That's what's happening. Oh,